This year marks the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution and the 26th year since the Soviet Union ceased to exist. Does the long communist experiment in Russia still matter? With us today, Nathan Sharansky, who spent nine years in Soviet prisons. Yes, Mr. Sharansky says, it still matters. Nathan Sharansky on Uncommon Knowledge, now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Born to a Jewish family in the Soviet Union in 1948, Nathan Sharansky became a chess prodigy, then studied at the Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology, roughly speaking, the Soviet equivalent of our own MIT. Although his training placed him in the comfortable ranks of the upper levels of Soviet society, he requested an exit visa to Israel, a request the Soviets denied, and then became a human rights activist, serving as a spokesman for the Moscow Helsinki Group. Arrested on charges of treason in 1977, Mr. Sharansky spent nine years in Soviet prisons. After President Reagan and others pressured the Soviets to release Mr. Sharansky, in 1986 he was finally permitted to emigrate to Israel. Since then, Mr. Sharansky has become a senior figure in Israeli politics. Nathan Sharansky, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. In just a moment, we'll, we'll turn to your classic memoir, Fear No Evil. But first, if I made this, as I said, this is 100 years since the Russian Revolution. And I was Googling around on the internet, and I found that there's a t-shirt that's especially popular. So is it good news that communism has been so completely forgotten that kids feel free to wear t-shirts about Karl Marx? Or is that bad news in some way? Well, it's uh, both. It's good news that I feel like vindicated for, against all those uh, ideologists or my interrogators who lived with this feeling that that they are creating empire for the next thousand years. And so to think that now nobody even remembers that there was such empire, it's good to know. On the other hand, the idea which was at the base of this awful experiment, which was called communism, uh, the idea that in order that there will be equality and happiness in this world, you have to erase identity to erase religion, to make everybody equal by taking their property from them. And then we, the state, the society, we will share it equally, that everybody will be of the same opinions, of the same uh, passionate or non-passionate attitude to history, to nationality, to religion. It's coming back. All this postmodernism, you know, the moment communists went into crisis and started dying as the idea, Postmodernism was born. Some of the leaders were Marxists, who were members of the Communist Party of Britain or France or some others, but it's finished. Nobody can now defend communism after millions of people were killed for the, uh, in the name of this awful idea. And now it's, it's coming in the new form. So it's very important uh, to remember what it meant ideologically and how far it could go into killing tens of millions of the people for the sake of this idea. So let's spend a moment or two talking about what life in the Soviet Union was like. 
from your memoir, Fear No Evil. I was only five when Stalin died, but the memory of that day in 1953 is still clear in my mind. This was when I first learned that in order to survive in Soviet society, you had to function on two levels at once. Yeah. Explain that. Okay, that's a very important point for understanding any dictatorship. And, uh, uh, I got it as a practical knowledge in the age of five. I come at home, Stalin died. Uh, my father makes sure that the neighbors don't hear us because we lived like three, five families in one apartment and explains me that we as Jews should be very happy that he died. It was awful man. He killed a lot of people. We Jews were now in big danger. But uh, now, because he died, probably we are saved. And he said, well, he didn't say probably. He didn't want to frighten me too much. He said, be happy. Remember, miracle happened. He didn't say that that's Purim, that's great uh, 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 Jewish celebration. He, uh, but he did say that miracle happened. Stalin died. But he said, don't tell it to anybody. Do what everybody does. The next day I go to kindergarten and I cry together with all the children about death of the son of all the people, uh, Stalin. And we sing songs, uh, how grateful we are to Stalin for the childhood which he gave us. So I sing songs, how we are grateful to Stalin. I cry together with all the children and I remember I should, uh, I should be very happy that Stalin died. That's typical state of mind of loyal Soviet citizen who knows that there is, that he has to do what he is told to do. He has to vote the way he is told to do. He can read the books which are permitted to read. He can uh, express the ideas which are approved, but it's all false. The real world is only for you, your closest family, your closest friends. And that's a situation of double think. It's typical situation for majority of citizens under dictatorship. And the longer dictatorship exists, the more people are not true believers, they are double thinkers. And because the world doesn't understand it, the world looks at these dictatorships and thinks, oh, they're so strong, they're so threatening. Can you also, also in Fear No Evil, you write about your father. Uh, Papa was born in Odessa in 1904, which made him 13 at the time of the revolution. 13, 100 years ago when the revolution took place. Like most of his generation, Papa had believed that the revolution would solve the Jewish problem and that the destiny of the Jews was to work together with other peoples to create an earthly paradise. Well, we're spending, we're devoting this to what went wrong. But first, what did they believe? If you if I asked you to make the best argument you could for communism 100 years ago, what was it that your father thought he saw? I'll tell you exactly. We are, this week we are celebrating 100 years to uh, Bolshevik Revolution. Right. It's also the same, almost the same name, 100 years Balfour Declaration. Yes. Balfour Declaration, that's the first political Zionist document recognizing uh, Jewish the state, Holland. Jewish Holland. So there were many, many Jewish families which were really split, including the family of my father. One son says, finally, we can build our own state. And the other says, but why do we need it? Now that finally we can be part of the bigger world, we don't have to be the people of one small shtetl 
one small nation. We can uh, now work for the uh, equality and uh, happiness of all the people in the world. And uh, those who really believed that is the right way, they helped directly or indirectly to create one of the most awful regimes in the world. But if there was a moment when intelligent people of goodwill could say, yes, this revolution looks hopeful. Well, uh, I, I would say that uh, the, the very first weeks, of course there was hope. No, no, majority of people didn't know what it really means. They, they only heard these slogans. Then uh, very quickly, very quickly, those who wanted to understand, they already in a couple of years, they could understand that uh, there will be no law, there will be no value of human life, and so on. Those who wanted to continue deceiving themselves continued for 10, 15, 20 years until this ideology killed them themselves. And, and uh, the most sad thing that so many intellectuals in the West, in the free world, like in 1937, the moment of the highest level of killing, red terror, Stalin right. purges and so on, comes one of the intellectual leaders of uh, Europe, uh, author Leon Fechtwanger to Moscow. Stalin takes him, no, permits him to go to open trials. And he writes from there that while we, the capitalists, are so uh, or preoccupied to, to, uh, to compete with one another, to exploit one another, to make unhappy one another. Here, this, everybody here is full of happiness. Even those people who are on the trial, they're also part of this ideology. So uh, you must be really crazy, one would think. But there are so many people in the West who wanted to convince themselves that the idea is so good that even if you have to kill some, even if there'll be, as Lane wrote in uh, 1918, he wrote, even if we'll have to kill a few hundred capitalists but for the sake of this great idea of happiness for everybody, it historically doesn't matter anything. And then they killed tens of millions, and it still doesn't matter. Again, fear no evil. In 1973, I joined the Aliyah movement of Jews who were struggling for their right to emigrate to Israel. At the age of 25, I finally learned what a joy it was to be free. Yeah. You were still in the Soviet Union. What do you mean yeah. that you felt free? Well, uh, people uh, under the totalitarian regime, when they already don't believe in this official ideology, when they are not true believers, and majority of people then don't believe. So they are double thinkers. They have to live under the permanent self-control, what they can say, what they can do. Uh, to remember with whom they are talking, if he's in form of KGB or not. And it's very depressing. People are used to it. They don't understand what kind of intellectual prison they live in. When you finally have enough courage or energy or desire to start saying things that you really believe in, Suddenly, of course, physically your life changed. The moment I said publicly that I don't want to live in this country, I want to leave this country, I want to go to Israel, you are losing your job, uh, your, your apartment will be searched, you'll be called for interrogations to KGB, so, some of your friends will ask to take their 
telephones from your notebook, you know, that they will not be called to KGB. But you are not controlling your thoughts anymore. You're saying and doing things that you really believe in. That's real freedom. So I was really lucky to discover at the age of 25 my identity and my freedom. And they were both very closely connected. Mm. Again, fear no evil. Shortly after 6 o'clock on the evening of March 15, 1977, I was abducted by the KGB outside an apartment on Gorky Street in downtown Moscow. I spent the next nine years in prison and labor camp, including more than 400 days in punishment cells and more than 200 days on hunger strikes. And during your first few days in prison, you write, I repeated a principle over and over until it was part of me. Nothing they do can humiliate me. Only I can humiliate myself. What did you mean? Well, as just now I said that I discovered that freedom is inner feeling. It's not whether you, uh, you are in a luxurious hotel or you're in a small prison. Or you are free to, to do things you believe in and to say things that you, uh, you really think or you are not free to do it. So freedom is, belongs only to you. And you can betray it. And then you will feel humiliated by, the, by betrayal of your own uh, freedom. Well, later when I uh, became more religious, I would say by betraying the image of God in which the people are created. Uh, but uh, of course, KGB, uh, repressive regime, thinks that they can destroy you by humiliating you. That the moment you feel yourself humiliated, you will lose self-respect, then it's much easier for them to, to break you during interrogations. Uh, and uh, they have many ways to humiliate you externally. So if you don't protect yourself by saying from the very beginning, whatever they do, it has nothing to do with you, with your honor, with your independence, with your freedom. It's only yours. Freedom is yours. Your self-respect is yours. Your opportunities to influence on the world. It all depends only on you, not on them. And that's how I built my defense. Mm. You were interrogated 110 times. Again, I'm quoting from Fear No Evil. Where they had once used force, the KGB now preferred to engage you in long conversations, trying to manipulate you with explanations, threats, promises, hints, and more threats, close quote. And you mentioned a moment ago that at an earlier stage there were true believers, but by the time we're in the Brezhnev era, by the time you're imprisoned, yeah. it's doublethink. Yeah. What, this is, I, I think for even Americans who try very hard to understand the history of the Soviet Union. How did that transition from true believers to Stalin and the bullets in the back of the head to this world in which you get the eyewitness accounts, yours among others, people didn't believe anymore, but they were somehow stuck in this system of double think, double belief, and instead of shooting prisoners, now we're engaging in these long, horrifying interrogations. What was the point of it all? 
And how did it perpetuate itself if, oh. if, if people had ceased really believing in it? No, well, first of all, there are many people who, were, uh, who didn't believe but li lived under fear. So the, fear. The, the system controls people through fear. And uh, it's not necessarily fear that you'll be sentenced to death. It can be fear that you will lose your work, that you will not be promoted, that you, know, you want to be uh, the head of clinics, but you can be all, only doctor if you will dare to speak publicly what you think. So all types of fears through which the system controls the lives of the people. Now, when you are asking about interrogators, I think majority of them also didn't believe in anything. The, the attitude was very cynical. They, it was good for them, the system, uh, uh, gave them opportunity of comfortable life, and they will always uh, say to their own consciousness that historically then probably it's the right thing to do. And they tried not to think too much because the moment they start going to the details, it's very difficult for them to, to, live, with uh, themselves. to live with themselves. Yeah. So they don't think too much. In early 1980, you write, the uh, last question about the gulag, your time in prison. The official in charge of storing prisoners' belongings, for some reason, returned to you your small copy of the Psalms. In Hebrew, you had been using the Psalms to learn Hebrew. And you write in Fear No Evil, the words lifted me above the mundane and directed me toward the eternal. I especially liked Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. How did you understand you became a religious man, but you started not particular? How, how, why did those words move you? It, sounds, it feels almost they moved you before you had an analysis of them. I have to say it was even more dramatic than you just now said. A uh, few days before my arrest, uh, I received the small sound book from the tourist from my wife. And my wife was already for two years. Yes, in, uh, in, in, in Israel, and uh, we hoped that we'll be together like, a few months after she'll leave, and she left next day after our marriage, and we met 12 years after. But, uh, so she sent me this song book, and she writes a note, which a tourist brought me, that it was with me for the last year, and I have a feeling that the time has come to send this book to you. I opened the small book, uh, if you don't, didn't get special education how to read ancient Hebrew texts, you will not even understand where the end of the phrase and the beginning because uh, the, the signs are different. And mo mo most of the words I don't know. I knew Hebrew demonstration, protest, visa, basic uh, Hebrew which we knew. So I put it aside and decided, okay, I, I don't have now time. It's very nice, well, Vital, good that you did it, but. Uh, it was just a moment of arrest of some of my colleagues. I was organizing many press conferences for Jewish movement and for human rights movement. A few days after this, I was arrested. And when they bring me the list of what they confiscated, there is this small black book, uh, not in Russian, that was written. And I understand that it's about, I start demanding that they'll give it to me. For three years, I was insisting that they'll give it to me. They gave it to me together with the telegram that my father passed away. So it was three years after I went to prison. So uh, what can I do? I cannot be with my mother, I cannot be with my family. So I decided 
I'll read Psalms until I understand what it is about. So I started reading this book and how I can understand even where is the end and the beginning of the phrase. So I was a mathematician. So I did, simply started using logic, comparing the word which, uh, in different sentences, and then comparing it with others. And it happened so that the, from this ocean of words, the first phrase which I understood fully, oh, here is the beginning and the end, and here are 13 short words. And when I go through the valley of death, at the end of it, and suddenly it's jumped on me. So who brought it to me? My wife, King David, God, Israel, all of them together came to prison to say to me, don't fear any evil, we are with you. And so that was a very powerful message. And of course, since then this book is always with me when I left uh, That's so the actual prison, book? Of course, uh, I was lying in the snow and I refused to move until they gave it to me when I was, had to, uh, when the airplane was waiting to take me to, to Berlin from prison. Mm. Yeah. You were finally released in 1986. Yeah. You flew to Israel, but not long afterwards, you paid a visit to President Reagan. And we speechwriters, I was a speechwriter on the Reagan speechwriting staff at the time, we were told that you told the president that his speeches meant a great deal to you in prison, that somehow or other brief excerpts of his speeches made it into prison and you would pass them from prisoner to prisoner in little strips of paper. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, I have to disappoint you. We didn't have the opportunity to read the speeches. But if you are not in a punishing cell, you can read Soviet newspaper Pravda. And he was, you see, suddenly in Pravda, there is an angry article that the president of the United States called Soviet Union evil empire. That's unprecedented. That's against all the norms, all the uh, detente, and how he dared, and what, uh, whatever. Also, all very angry words. And we, we, we were so excited. I told the, like, the president that was the best day for us in prison. And I can explain why. Because we dissidents knew, felt, always wrote about it, how weak the system is because of this double thing, how it is falling from, from inside. And the only thing which helps it to survive is the fact that the world is scared and prefers to cooperate with them and to help them in order not to, to, to challenge them. And so if only the world will understand the real nature of this regime and how weak this regime, then its days will be counted. That was our theories. Here finally comes the leader of the United States of America and informs the world and us in prison through the Soviet propaganda that that's evil empire and it has no hope for the future because it deprives people of freedom. What can be better? So, yeah, I remember how... Suddenly, I, I read this, I become very excited that I realize that uh, downstairs there is uh, one of our friends is at this moment the punishing cell. In the punishing cell, you don't uh, uh, read Soviet newspaper. So I start sending him immediately by Morris. That's how we spoke, by Morris, that American president called Soviet Union evil empire. And he is calling, hurrah, finally. So it was for us that 
Finally, the world starts understanding some very basic things. So that was why it does. For 30 years, I've been wanting yeah. to ask you this. Yeah. So I'd like to play a couple of clips yeah. of Reagan's speeches, and you tell yeah. us if, if, if he and his speechwriters got it right. Yeah. Okay. June 8th, 1982, uh, President Reagan speaks to the British Parliament. But I believe we live now at a turning point. In an ironic sense, Karl Marx was right. We are witnessing today a great revolutionary crisis, a crisis where the demands of the economic order are conflicting directly with those of the political order. But the crisis is happening not in the free, non-Marxist West, but in the home of Marxist Leninism, the Soviet Union. So here's the kind of criticism that President Reagan received. Arthur Schlesinger Jr., the famous historian, quote, those in the U.S. who think the Soviet Union is on the verge of economic and social collapse are only kidding themselves. Who was right? Well, uh, I listen uh, I'm laughing. Why am I laughing? Because dissidents in prison were saying exactly this. Exactly. And uh, uh, I remember Vladimir Balkhonda, one, one of my cellmates, who was a serious economist, but then they tried to escape to the West, and so he was arrested. And he, all information which he has, the Soviet newspaper probably. And he every day counts and tells them, understand, they can't even, they are building the railroad, and they report that it exists, doesn't exist in the paper I counted. The production of coal and this and this is lower than 10 years ago. They're going down. So he simply figure, compares different figures which he read. At the same time, the so-called Sovietologists are believing in all the nonsense which Soviet Union uh, writes that in 20 years will be, there will be communism, we will uh, uh, be bigger than the United States in the economy in 70 years and this, all this nonsense. And even, I think, a few years before Soviet Union fell apart, they were still leading Sovietologists who were explaining that Soviet Union is strong, it's forever. For this is simply because they, they knew how weak it's from inside. So when they look professional and all the things, they feel, see the different world. So here, the President of the United States of America is saying the same what my prison cell uh, uh, said. So he, uh, my prison cell, Lodia Balakhonov, could be heard only by me. He could be heard by all the world. Why the world didn't believe him? I really don't understand it. Mm. But thanks God that there were people like he and Margaret Thatcher who got it right. One more clip yeah. here. So in your discussions of the nuclear freeze proposals, I urge you to beware the temptation of pride, the temptation of blithely uh, declaring yourselves above it all and label both sides equally at fault to ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding, and thereby remove yourself from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil. Evil empire. He was denounced yeah. everywhere. Yeah, but it's very important that he pulled it on, on, on the level of principle, that we have to understand that in principle, uh, Agreements between democracy and between dictatorships are two different things. Because uh, in democracy, you can rely on the fact that the government has to satisfy these people. In the evil empire, uh, 
the government doesn't depend on the people. People depend on the government. So the government has to, uh, must have an external enemy and to permanently to mobilize their people to fight. So uh, any agreement will not make them more peaceful to you. Any agreement has to be controlled, uh, controlled first of all by your power. And the fact that President Reagan and his representatives on the negotiations with Soviet Union put dire made direct linkage. We cannot trust you because you keep people in prison. And because of this, we cannot go so far and so far on our disarmament agreement. There were many people saying, that, how can he connect disarmament with the people in prison? But what was really understood that the real power of this system is defined by the fact how they control their people. The moment they make the, the dissidents out of prison, they don't control their people. And then they are becoming weak. One last Reagan clip that I'd like to ask you to comment on. And bear in mind that the State Department and the National Security Council both wanted the passage that you're about to see deleted <laughs> from the speech. We welcome change and openness. For we believe that freedom and security go together, that the advance of human liberty, the advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. There is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. So, yeah. too provocative? No. Over the top? Two things. No, great speech, for sure, great speech. But uh, you say that uh, the State Department was against two things. First of all, when I came to uh, President Reagan first time. Uh, 1986. Uh, 1986, right. May 1986. And to thank him. He was personally very involved. and he, he met with my wife, and then he spent a lot of efforts pressing on Gorbachev. Uh, and I was the first political prisoner who was released because of this. So I had personal thanks. But also I told him what a great day in, in prison was this speech. And then he, when he heard it, he made me to repeat that everybody has to hear. And then I realized that he had a lot of headache with that speech. <laughs> with uh, that's first. Second, I want to say, a uh, year and a half after this, Gorbachev was going to come for the first time to, uh, to uh, United States of America. I come with the idea that when Gorbachev comes, let's hundreds of thousands of American Jews will march on Washington. And, uh, uh, and that happened in the end. But, there were like few months of hot discussions. There were some people in Jewish community who were afraid that while everybody wants 
uh, loves Gorbachev, everybody wants peace. We Jews will be troublemakers. We will be against mm -hmm. the desire of American people to, to, uh, to celebrate peace and detente. And instead of this, we'll have demonstration. Uh, well, I, I thought it's absolutely wrong. Uh, that reaction of the Americans will be different. But who am I to, to argue with? I went to the students and everybody wanted this demonstration. But on the level of some of bureaucrats, there was a real fear that we cannot put our Jewish community in such a situation. So what I decided to do, I decided to ask Reagan. I, I, uh, I said about the White House that my wife met Reagan and I met Reagan, but it's the first time that we are together in America and we, we want to, to say him thank you together. And he immediately agreed to the meeting and he looked at us like a proud grandfather looking at us because he was really very happy. So, then, but you know, it was already the time when he started confusing some words. So, so he said to me, and by the way, uh, no, he said to me, uh, dear Mr. and Mrs. Shevardnadze, Shevardnadze was uh, foreign minister of the Soviet Union. I, I just had a conversation with foreign minister Sharansky, and I told him, you'll better let Soviet Jews out. So people are a little bit embarrassed, but I didn't care. I said, I said, no, no, I said Mr. The President, soon you'll see Gorbachev himself. I want you to know that many of us, American Jews and us, you know, want to organize big demonstration of protest. And I want you to, to understand that it's not against your policy. And I was looking for the words. He stopped me and he said, what, somebody can think that I will be against it? Of course, you, somebody thinks that I would like to, uh, uh, to be friends with Gorbachev and he keeps people in prison. Do everything what you have to do and they'll do what I have to do. So I went out and said, even Reagan wants us to have this demonstration, why you should be against. But what's important, I later give examples of this saying. I know many politicians. For politicians today, it's so important to know the names of everybody in their party, in their central committee, to know the dates of birth, to know the dates of what it's, not to, not to confuse anything. But when it comes to what is good and what is bad, full, full confusion. Here's person who already started forgetting the names. But when it comes to what is right and what is wrong to do, he was so clear. He was, his reaction was immediate, without any hesitation. How it ended. Yeah. There are two fundamentally competing yeah. narratives of the way the Cold War ended. One, is, uh, one, one holds that the West, Reagan, Thatcher, Pope John Paul II, place increasing moral economic, military pressure on the Soviet Union, and they're undermined Soviet morale until the Soviet Union collapses. But the West places pressures on the system that the system cannot bear. The other narrative, let's call it the Gorbachev thesis, holds that the Soviet Union collapsed for entirely internal reasons. I found this quotation. Gorbachev was interviewed when he came to Washington for Reagan's funeral, and when he was asked if the United States won the Cold War, Gorbachev replied, that's not serious. He said, we were increasingly behind the West, and I was ashamed for my country. We couldn't provide toothpaste for our own people. Nothing to do with what you were doing, you and the West were doing, was entirely internal. We were suffering economic problems, and that was what brought us down. How did it end? 
well, <laughs> for me it's obvious. Of course, Soviet Union fell because of the internal weakness. And this internal weakness was uh, demonstrated to the world by dissidents. They were those who understood its weakness. They were those who were connected to this double thing. They were those who already crossed this line. And they knew that millions will do the same. They also were those who were explaining to the West that the only source of economical power which Soviet Union has is the fact that the, it knows how to deceive the West and how to get cooperation with the West. Because economy, it's more and more difficult to run an economy based on slaves. Uh, so uh, <coughs> that's why it was so important that at some moment the West will start listening to this and linking the question of human rights with the question of economical cooperation. It started from Santa Jackson, the way right. great. Scoop Jackson. Scoop Jackson, Democrat, who yes. for the first time made direct linkage between freedom of immigration and a status of most favored uh, nation. And then it continued uh, when we succeeded to turn Helsinki Agreement from non-binding to something very binding. Uh, of course, we paid uh, by prison for this. But, right. but, and, and, so, uh, and then it uh, reached even uh, armament uh, negotiations, Star Wars. Just at the moment when Soviet Union was so desperate in having big economical uh, difficulties and trying to convince the world, the, uh, the Western world, that the time to stop our competition. In fact, uh, Reagan said, we will start competing with you and you can try to be as quick and as good as we are. And Soviet Union had no chance. So of course it, it was as good that Gorbachev, who was a relatively young leader, came and understood that they have all these huge problems and he starts, has to start giving up, releasing prisoners, decreasing pressure. But why he understood it? Only because there was such a pressure and because the economical system didn't work. So when I am asked who is responsible for bringing down the Soviet Union, I always say, uh, uh, first of all, it's dissidents like Andrei Sakharov, then it's politicians like Reagan and Senator Jackson, and then, of course, Gorbachev also was important. I, Gorbachev, by the way, took it very personal once we appeared together, and he said, you, I released you, and you say that I am only in the third place after Reagan and after Sakharov. <laughs> <laughs> what can I do? That's <laughs> One more passage from Fear No Evil. You're writing here about after your release, you're writing from Jerusalem after nine years in prison. In the punishment cell, life was much simpler. Every day brought only one choice, good or evil, white or black, saying yes or no to the KGB. In freedom, I am lost in a myriad of choices. When I walk on the street, dozens of cheeses, fruits and juices stare at me from store windows. What to drink in the morning, coffee or tea, what newspaper to read, where to go for Sabbath how to enjoy the vivid colors of freedom without losing the existential depth I felt in prison, how to retain that unique feeling of the interconnection of human souls which I discovered in the gulag. These are the questions I must answer in my new life. Now, we've spoken a couple of times about the younger generation, the younger generation in the West in my mind, of course, I'm an American, the younger generation of Americans, it's been more than 25 years since the fall of the Soviet Union. They have no memory at all. 
And all kinds of polls show that they're dubious about the capitalist system. In the last presidential election, young people disproportionately supported Bernie Sanders. Is it the case that they're searching for the kind of existential depth that you discovered in prison, some kind of meaning, and that day-to-day, -day, ordinary capitalist life doesn't provide it? That freedom, as we experience it, is its own solvent, that it leads people to search for something deeper? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, before criticizing young generation, which never knew never lived under communism. Let's remember that the time when communism existed, there were so many people in the free world who refused to recognize the nature of communism. So uh, second, yeah, I think uh, nothing can replace the inner experience of people, their own search for justice and for freedom and so on. And uh, uh, for example, I can say that dealing a lot with young Jews on the campuses today, I'd say that many young Jews are trying to find the answer to the same question to which I had when I was young, saying that should we work for the better of all the world or for ourselves, for our own people? And uh, if you really believe that you have to choose, you always will choose better of all the world. And then you, you can go to the romantics of communism or something else. But if you understand what I understood very well, that if you want to make the world better, you, have, you must have strong identity. You must have base history that you want to belong to. People that make your story bigger than your own uh, story. You, uh, there are some great principles which are more important for you than physical life. Then, when you have this base, you can make the world better. So I think this need to keep together our desire to belong and our desire to be free is something very important, which our world very often loses. Look at Europe, which decided that identity is the enemy of freedom, and as the result, trying to get rid of its own identity became powerless, life almost without meaning, life which doesn't give you strength to fight against real threats to your freedom. Uh, so all this postmodern world is in a real danger because it's losing its identity in order to enjoy freedom and cannot even defend their freedom. On the other hand, Middle East, there are all these strong identities which are against freedom. And here I always give example of Israel. We are part of Middle East, but we insist we are democracy and we are part of free world, but we insist we are Jewish state. So we are going against these both tendencies in the Middle East of dictatorship and in the free world of postmodern and post-identity. But that's the only way really to enjoy full, meaningful life and to be free. Last couple of questions. Summary, a summary state. If you could, can you reduce to one sentence what young Americans most need to know, to cling to, about the Soviet Union? Uh, Soviet Union tried to turn people in the cog of big machine which existed in the imagination of the communism. And that people have 
to be deprived of their individuality in order to be good cogs of this big robot. And, and that's the danger of any totalitarian ideology. And can you give them one sentence of young Americans, what they most should grasp and hold on to about the United States itself? Well, it's very simple, freedom. Uh, freedom begins from inside, but it is the road outside which gives you opportunity to enjoy it. And uh, America is the country uh, which is not only a good place for shopping, but a good place also to enjoy your freedom if you know how to, to be free. Nathan Sharansky, thank you. I'm Peter Robinson for Uncommon Knowledge and the Hoover Institution. Thank you.